Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. My name is Brad Barber, co-director of International Cinema, and today in the booth we'll be discussing the film from our Tread Lightly theme, Wasteland, directed by Lucy Walker, João Jardim, and Karen Harley. Brazilian artist Vic Muniz collaborates with garbage pickers at the world's largest landfill, Jardim Gramacho, near Rio de Janeiro, to create art from recycled materials. Through this process, the film highlights the transformative power of artistry while casting an empathetic light on the lives of those working in challenging conditions. My guest today is Jordan B. Jones, an assistant professor in the BYU Department of Spanish and Portuguese. He lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil for three years as a child and spent two years in Paraíba, a state in Brazil's Northeast region. He holds a PhD in Portuguese and Brazilian studies from Brown University, and his research focuses on slavery in 19th century literature and questions of race and racial justice in contemporary literature in Brazil and the Americas more generally. I'm excited to talk to you today for one reason, uh, for the listeners, we've already talked about this, something you and I have in common is we both have lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil for a few years. That's right. I was there for two years when I was a young adult. You lived there for three years when you were a kid, as you say. That's correct. Um, so first off, I want to hear more about living in Brazil. Like, How old were you when you were in Sao Paulo? What part of the city did you live in? Yeah, so my parents were um, asked to supervise a group of missionaries in Sao Paulo. Um, and so we moved there in 1999, just about two weeks before I turned 10. So I was 10, 11, and 12. While there, we lived in Morumbi, which is a very upscale neighborhood in Sao Paulo. Um, By the soccer stadium? Yeah, not yeah, not too far from the soccer stadium. We I, we attend, my, my siblings and I am the youngest of eight kids, but five of us were... Anyway, the, the oldest three were in college at that point already. So five of us went mm. and we attended an international school um, just down the street from, from where we lived. And anyway, so it was kind of, it was great. It was, I feel like kind of a bubble in terms of what I was exposed to. We lived across the street from Paraisópolis, which is a large favela community in Sao Paulo. I believe the largest, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I knew it was there, but I didn't really compute what that meant as a 10 year old, 12 year old boy. Um, and it's been interesting to think back through that experience, given you know the training and the education that I've had and, and subsequent experiences in Brazil to kind of recognize how little I saw of that. Yeah, yeah. And you were 10, 10 to 13 yeah. while you lived there? Yep. That's a formative time in anyone's life. That must yeah. have been a really interesting lesson to see those disparities, or at least you maybe didn't spend a lot of time in the favelas, but you knew they were there, you knew there yeah. was a difference. Absolutely. So in some ways, less of a bubble than maybe living in a place like Provo, for example. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if I've even been in your same apartment because when I was I was there until I was there from ninety six to ninety eight, mm-hmm. and you know when you first arrive and when you leave, <laughs> they let you come to the high rise apartment yep. and you know eat Doritos or whatever. Yeah, I bet it was. I mean, I know it was the same apartment that the that the Hickmans lived in the Hickmans. Um, that we then occupied for those three years so well there's another little connection yeah that's right sat on your couch (laughs) (laughs) what an amazing place to live at any time of life much less at at those like i said formative years yeah and then tell our listeners a little bit more about paraiba i imagine a lot of people have heard of sao paulo but paraiba not so much what was it like up there how old were you when you lived there and it was was great i was a missionary when i was 19 and 20 in paraiba which is a state in the northeast region of brazil so it's a coastal state um, and it is the Northeast of Brazil is stereotypically less educated, um, less wealthy. 
it's a great place for people to go on vacation, but they don't want to live there in terms if you're thinking of people from Sao Paulo and Rio, they want to spend a week or two, but not longer than that there. Mm. And my experience was um, I was very much I, I was less sheltered, I would say, than when I was in Sao Paulo in terms of I was circulating in neighborhoods that I wouldn't have visited as a 10 year old or the, or the equivalent neighborhoods, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think I saw a wider swath of of uh, socioeconomic status, uh, family situation, and it was great. People there are so kind and so welcoming and loving. Mm. Uh, it's hot up there <laughs> year round. Um, and yeah, it was an interesting kind of contrast. There are obviously some similarities in terms of Brazilian culture and mannerisms that, that are common to Sao Paulo and Paraíba. Um, but the way people speak and the way they think oftentimes is, is quite different. Mm. I don't know how, um, pertinent this is to our conversation, but I love to use the word kind mm. when you're talking about people there. Cause I've, as I've tried to interrogate my own assumptions about Brazilians or Brazil in general for my, you know, relatively limited number of years there, I keep thinking, I, I always think of Brazilians as incredibly kind, yes. incredibly mm-hmm. Easy to talk to, even as an introverted stranger like myself. <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes I've wondered, like, oh, I wonder if that was just that part of you know Brazil I was living in, or that time that I was there, yeah. where the fact, where the circumstances of me being there. So it's interesting to hear you, you maybe notice that in more than one city, more than one yeah. region. And of course, you know, people are people, and one person's different from another. But I, I would say in general, Brazilians tend to be a lot more open and welcoming and kind. And for someone who's a non-native speaker of Portuguese, they're a lot more understanding than I think oftentimes we in the U.S. are to people who are non-native speakers of English. Um, well, just to talk a little bit more about your sort of backstory, because I think this will inform our conversation. Three years as a kid, two years as a young adult, I mean, that's more than a vacation. This is, <laughs> you're not a tourist necessarily. You're not a native Brazilian, but I, I wouldn't consider that a tourist kind of situation. You're, you're living there. Mm-hmm. Um I wonder how, and you mentioned, you kind of alluded to this a little bit. Could you tell me any more about sort of how you saw yourself in relation to the native Brazilians that lived in your area? What was your relationship with them like? Did you, it sounds like you may not have gone to school with them, but what other sort of interactions would you have with them, if if any? Yeah. So when I was a child in Sao Paulo, I did go to, like I said, an international school, which pulled from a lot of U.S. American expats but also a lot of wealthy Brazilians. And so I, I did go to school with them. The school was in English primarily. I took a Portuguese class and then, you know, hallway conversations were a mix of English and Portuguese and some Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, yeah, by the time I had finished my missionary work, I was almost, I was just barely 21. and had spent a quarter of my life in Brazil. And so I'm not Brazilian by any means, but there was certainly... A significant amount of time in in formative years that I spent there, and I would, I mean, I, I love Brazil and Brazilian culture, and I'm invested in Brazilian culture and teaching it, and and um, kind of making Portuguese and Brazilian culture more present in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, but I'll, remembering that I've, you know, I have maybe more experience than most, but I'm still. You know, grew up in Texas, and I'm not. I, I don't know. Maybe a little bit more insight than a typical um, U.S. scholar would have, but but still, I feel very much on the. I'm aware of my status as an outsider. I guess is maybe one way to put it. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. 
You've watched this film more than once, mm-hmm. I want to say. In yeah. fact, am I remembering right? You told me before you've lectured about it. Uh, I have not. I've taught it in a class. I didn't give like an international cinema lecture, but I've taught it two, two or three times. I'd love to hear about that first. And you must have a number of things that stand out to you that you want to make sure students take away from this in any context. What would you like to talk about first? Yeah. So the first time I taught this course or this film, rather, it was in a course called Brazilian Culture and Human Rights um, that I designed and taught here my first semester in fall of 2021. Um, And then last semester I taught it um, in a film class, uh, Portuguese, Luso-Brazilian cinema is what it was called. So Portuguese language film. And in both cases, I brought in a lot of my research interests, which is human rights and uh, racial injustice and things like that. And so it was a lot focused on um, the ethics of, you know, what what Vic Muniz is doing and how does he to what extent is he being ethical and responsible in engaging these um, these individuals from a low class community and, you know, what are the problems and potential in, in any endeavor like that? Yes, yes, yes. Tell me everything. Tell me the answers to all those questions you just raised. Those are perfect. Sure. I think, um, I think certainly there's, there's a power imbalance there. I mean, he's going there. He has the money and the means to, um, to buy the recycled material that they're collecting. And to he's, if you, if you watch the movie, there's, there's portions where he's up on kind of a scaffolding or a catwalk up really high and projecting an image onto the ground. And the, the catadores, the pickers are assembling, you know, recyclable material into the shapes that he wants. And so he's, he's very much the one in charge, um, in terms of no, you know, take, take away a layer here, add something over, over there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think he is, he seems to be genuinely invested in their relationships with the individuals and in to the extent possible um, affirming them and their identity as human beings and as people with dreams and potential, um, even though they've had a rough go. Hmm. So it was an interesting kind of interchange there where it seems like they do have some control, but I do think Vic ultimately retains control. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course he has, you know, the studio in Rio where the works of art are actually created, but he has the liberty and the means to go back to New York, you know, periodically or as, as often as he wants really in this process. Uh, whereas the workers themselves are, they're bound to where they live in, in Jardim Gramacho. Um, in terms of the impact, well, one more thing about the process. I think because it was meant to be a documentary film that seemed to be made kind of in in parallel with the actual creation of the works of art. I think there's a certain element of performativity that you can see in the film. So for example, he will, I don't know if it's Skype or whatever it is at that time, but he's video conferencing with the director of his studio in Rio and they're speaking in English, which I would presume that typically they would just speak in Portuguese, but they're Mm -hmm. for the audience's benefit, you know? And so I think there is a certain amount of artificiality there um, I think you're right. <laughs> but but in terms of the impact on, and they have this conversation, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of the way through the film where they've made the works of art, they're going to auction them off in London. The discussion is, do we take these workers along with us to London for a week or two, knowing that they will go right back to the landfill where they've been working? And is that going to cause problems in their you know emotional or uh, in their outlook on life? And Vic's take is no. 
um, you know, it'll show them other possible lives, lives that they could lead mm. and maybe in, motivate them to make a plan to get out of the landfill, which I think is problematic <laughs> um, in, in terms of like, he, he seems a little dismissive of his wife and the Fabio, the, uh, the studio director's concerns. Mm. But at the end of the movie, you see interviews with those workers saying, oh, I'm so glad I did this. I, I used to think of myself as less than human or as just a tiny little person. And now I have more self-confidence and now I know what I'm capable of. And so it seems, and again, that's all edited. And I'm sure they chose the most impactful uh, interview moments to, to portray in the film. But it seems like their conclusion is that it was a net positive for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you skeptical? You sound a little skeptical of that. Um, I think, I think, for those individuals, it is. I think it was positive for them in terms of um, them having more exposure, the world learning a little bit more about judging Ramashu and the the plight of these workers, and the proceeds of the sale of the photos at the auction. Um, I think it, the film says it's about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He gives that to the workers, it seems, and that's great. Um, I think it's also undeniable that it certainly strengthens Vic's brand to have done this. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, and so I, I think it's, I think it's a little difficult to say this was a totally selfless thing. I think his motivations, they seem genuine and they seem, mm. um, you know, uh, charitable, but there is something in it for him as well. He, it, it, I'm starting to think that he's almost like this hybrid entity uh, when it comes to an extractive experience because he mm. did come from Brazil. He was raised there at one point in the film. We see him go back and visit his childhood home mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Sao Paulo, which is not that far from Rio. And you and I have probably been to a lot of neighborhoods like that. I, I would consider that somewhat of a middle class neighborhood, yeah. depending on what part, maybe even upper middle class. However, um, when you see him there with, oh, and, and he also, to make a distinction, I mean, he, so he did not grow up in a landfill. He did not grow up right. in the favelas, right. but he probably had seen some difficult things. He, at the beginning of the film, he mentions being shot and mm-hmm. someone paying him off ostensibly in uh, you know, a gangster or something to, uh, and then he used that money to go to the United States. Right. But then he's been in the United States for a while and he's successful there and he's got the Eames chair and Anyway, so when he comes back, first of all, I'd, I'd love to hear, like, do you agree with that assessment that where he grew up uh, in Sao Paulo is at least more relatable or understandable to the people that he's interacting with in the landfill than maybe if he had just come from, you know, the United States? Yeah, I think absolutely. And he says in the film, because I was, you know, I had this question on my mind as well, like, okay, what is... In early on in the film, he's talking with, I think it's Chiel, one of these workers, and he says, oh, yeah, I also grew up poor in a mm. difficult family situation. And to me, that sounded a little patronizing, maybe kind of like, oh, we're the same, even though they're not. Um, but later on, when, when he goes back and visits his home, he says, when I, w- when I grew up here, it was a rougher neighborhood. It was a poorer neighborhood, and it has since become more middle class. Mm. And his dad says something really interesting, which is he says that I bought this land this plot in 1963 i think he says and then i bu- I built the house subsequently mm-hmm. and that is tied to this phenomenon called autoconstrucción or auto construction where basically you do just that you don't have enough money to buy a house outright so you buy a plot of land 
or you squat on it. And little by little, in the, you, know, you, you do your day job, and in the evenings you add a brick here and a brick there. And over time, over decades, you, you build a house that is you know, um, a better situation for your family to live in. Mm-hmm. And what that does is, if that is a trend that happens in the whole neighborhood, is it elevates the neighborhood's you know, socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, and I'm, I can think of, there was a neighborhood that I visited that I, you know, spent a, a good amount of time in, in Paraiba as a missionary. No, um, there was one payphone that people would kind of share and run and, you know, Oh, you want to talk to this person? Let me go grab them. There was no paved streets or anything. And I went back eight years later looking for some of the people that I'd made, had, had relationships with and couldn't find it. And I was asking around and asking around and I come to find out I was in the right spot, but it had been paved in the meantime. And so it was largely unrecognizable to me. Mm -hmm. So anyway, all that to say, I do think there is, it's entirely possible that he grew up in very poor circumstances and that in the 20 or 30 years since that neighborhood has, Mm -hmm. um, you know, has become, has gotten more infrastructure um, and that the periphery that used to be where his house was has now been pushed out farther from the city center. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I, I from where I stood, I remember just feeling kind of relieved that he had as much in common as he did with them. Maybe mm. he didn't grow up exactly like them. Sure. But I thought when he talked to them, it felt a lot more, I don't know, it felt a lot more genuine to me yeah. that he felt very comfortable with them. They seemed to feel comfortable with him. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. don't always see that in these types of you know, right. projects or documentaries. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of the the critique of extractive research or art or whatever it may be is that you go there, you take what you can, and then you leave and you never reconnect with them. And I don't know what his con- contact with him has been since, but in the film, um, it shows him going back and hanging you know, the, the pictures, the, the smaller versions of the museum sized pictures in their homes and mm-hmm. interacting with them. And so it does seem, I, I would agree, more genuine and more, it's, it's imbalanced regardless, but less imbalanced maybe than, than, than it might have been. That's a great point. I'd forgotten about that scene at the end. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the film, we see Vic sitting uh, in his nice place in New York as he's considering doing the project. He's talking to his collaborators, his wife. And he says he wants to make art that, quote, can take people away from where they are, showing them another world, another place, similar to what you were saying before mm-hmm. about his kind of assessment at the end about if he should take them with him. This is at the beginning. He's just kind of considering these ideas. And he asks himself this question. He says, can this be done? And what would be the effects of this? Yeah. So what do you think of that question? Do you think he succeeds in taking people away from where they are, in his words? I think so in that, if I'm remembering correctly, it's that same scene where he says, you know, art, I, I want to make art and art in general can take people away from their lives, even if it's just for a moment. And, um, and so I certainly think that's true of, you know, of the workers who, who are selected and he selects, I don't know, maybe six or eight or 10 of them. Of course, there's thousands more that don't have that experience, but I think for the ones that, that do get featured, yeah, they, they get a glimpse of more than a glimpse. They, they are immersed in a world that they usually wouldn't have access to. Um, and I think there's an interesting contrast in the beginning of the movie where he's talking with his wife, Janaina, and she says, he's like, oh, I'm going to spend the next two years at this landfill. And she's concerned. And she says, it's not exactly safe what they do. And he says, yeah, but they don't question that because that's what they live from. And the, and her, his wife responds, yeah, but we do. 
And that luxury of being able to be like, I don't want to put myself in that situation and I can choose not to. Um, and then, you know, the conversation continues and Vic says, these are probably the roughest kind of people you can think of. They're all drug addicts. It's like the end of the line. That's where everything that's not good goes, including the people. And then contrast that with the end of the movie where he's reflecting on the experience and saying, you know what? I connected with these people a lot more than I anticipated that I would, um, and built, built relationships that were more significant than I anticipated. And I think there is a, a narrative of reflection and change in Vic's outlook on these people. In addition to changing the people he's working with and their idea of what's possible in their lives, there is kind of this um, evolution of how he views people on the margins of society. And he says at the end, I didn't grow up like them. I grew up in this you know, poor neighborhood. But if anything had happened, if my parents had died or there was some catastrophe, I, I might very well have ended up where they are, which I think is a, an interesting observation. Yeah, that's remarkably self-aware. Uh, I, I had the same feeling. By the time you get to the end, they're not all drug addicts. They're not all people right. that were born there. They were people that easily, yeah, one one or two bad things happen in their lives, and otherwise they might be just like Vic in yeah. the opposite sense. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, when he says that about taking people to another place, after I reflected on it, I wondered if he's also, I mean, he's obviously talking about the, the potential to bring these people that he's collaborating with and showing them a different kind of, mm -hmm. you know, life or world. I wonder if he's also um, taking the type of people that can afford to go to art museums and look at this art away from their privilege in some sense and yeah. into these landfills and into other types of lives mm -hmm. in kind of the reverse mm -hmm. way. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Um, and just focusing on... Well, yeah, they, they work in these, these mountains of recyclable material. Where does that all come from? It comes from me, right? And it comes from my neighbor, and it comes from from this tendency to just consume and consume and consume. And I think, uh, so So Vic Muniz, his exhibit came to BYU in 2021 at the Museum of Art here. And I was teaching this class, we watched the movie, and then we went to the to the exhibit as a class. and. And it was fascinating to see students' reactions and, you know, thinking about things that they hadn't necessarily thought about before or, or thought about much. And they responded really well to it. Um, and I think, I mean, it's impossible to take everybody to that landfill and show them what life is like. And maybe this is, it's something that's heading in that direction that's accessible to people who live a world away. That's a beautiful way to bring it back home, and I'm glad our students at uh, BYU were able to experience it through this film this week um, with the terrific documentary Wasteland. Mm -hmm. Is there any final thoughts you'd like to share before we wrap it up? Um, I, I guess just going back to this idea of performativity and um, you know the 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 balance of power and extractivism in relation to this film. At the very end of the film, you see Chiyong, uh on this this talk show, this nighttime talk show with Joe Suarez, and he says, "Oh, can I correct you? Actually, it's not. We don't work with garbage. We work with recyclable material." And I think it's a really interesting. And they they make that point throughout the film. It's interesting to me that the film in English is called Wasteland. Uh, in Portuguese, it's called Lixo Extraordinário or Extraordinary Garbage. And so, even though the whole time they've been calling it recyclable material, the workers have when it when the film is made it's called garbage <laughs> and mm. and i think 
again, that like, well, this will this will sell more and this will maybe pique people's interest a little bit more than I don't know what 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 a an eloquent way to say recyclable material it, to incorporate that into the title. But I think it's another another thing to think about in terms of the ethics and the approach uh, of this film in undertaking this project, was, which is, I think, um, important. And I think there's a lot to be said for it, but is not entirely unproblematic. You've given us a lot to think about. And uh, that's what international cinema is all about. I'm glad you're helping us think of these questions to consider and interrogate both with the things that we see on screen as well as within our own lives. As you said, even here in the United States, you know, we are in some ways linked to this um, ecosystem that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for sharing your time and expertise, Jordan, especially your personal experiences. I could listen to a lot more of this um, because we don't have many guests that have lived in such similar Mm. circumstances as these films. So it's it's really priceless to have opportunity to learn from you. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you to the listeners as well for joining us today on From the Booth. We're grateful for the support of the BYU College of Humanities. You can check out our schedule, read about our films and more at ic.byu.edu or on Instagram at BYU underscore IC. And as ever, the opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent official views of the university or its supportive institutions. Sound engineering on our show is by Hayden Underwood with original music by Johnny Stallings and Stephen Stallings. To all our listeners, we hope to see you in room 250 of the Kimball Tower and we'll talk again next time from the booth.